Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best details on last-minute tickets. Did you know Red Wings ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? Well, GameTime tracks ticket prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. And guys, there are tickets across all major leagues and teams. This is not just about the Red Wings. Any sporting event you want to do, GameTime's got you covered. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Detroit Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And today, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. The Red Wings had a couple of their better games of the season this weekend and came up with just one point out of those four games. Prashant, uh, what, what did you see uh, in, in the Red Wings games against the Sabres and Blues? Yeah, Max, you're, you're absolutely right. I think this the past two games from Detroit were probably their two best I guess consecutive games. I think in particular the game against St. Louis was probably their best effort just overall at 5 on 5 which you know not asking for a lot but when you're on the heels of a 7 game losing streak uh you'll really take anything that you can get. And so I thought their play at least against St. Louis was probably their best of the season. They really controlled uh play for most of the second and third period, particularly the third period where they really took over. And they were really only uh, undone by a bad uh, too-many-men penalty and then a kind of seeing-eye shot from David Perron in overtime. But otherwise, I thought this was their best effort and largely an encouraging sign. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think they seem to have found a workable shuffle of the top six. That that has uh, They played it really probably five of the six periods, I would say. Over these two games, and that would be with Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Helm on the top line, Athanasiu, Philip Lamantha on the second line. That seems to be working. I don't know what you think about that, but I know I asked uh, Dylan Larkin after the game why he thinks Helm works there in that top spot, because when we had talked on the podcast about the eventual likelihood of some kind of shuffle happening in the top six, my kind of thought was... If you're going to take Manta off, you need probably a, an offensive player, a scorer, kind of to fill that role. Instead, they went with Darren Helm, who I think is is more kind of in the Bertuzzi mold of, a, and Bertuzzi's a scorer too. Don't get me wrong, but but of that kind of forechecking type, and and that's actually what Larkin pointed to, is he says, you know, Helm's maybe the hardest forechecker he's ever played with, and so they just dig and dig and dig, and when those three who are all very good forecheckers are going, they can kind of. My sense is that that allows them to kind of generate multiple opportunities, even when maybe the first one doesn't go their way. Yeah, when you and I have talked about this in the past, we, you know, I've suggested that Mantha was really the guy that you, if you're going to break up that top line, he was the guy you needed to pull off of the top line simply because I think he of, you know, he's really been the team's MVP this year, and he's really the guy that drives play probably better than any other player on the Red Wings right now. And so, if you were looking to get somebody else going, he was the guy you probably needed to pull down to another unit because Dylan Larkin is strong enough on his own. Tyler Bertuzzi is really coming to his own. Those guys were probably strong enough to carry whatever third member got brought there. But Mantha by himself, you know, is largely able to uplift his line mates simply because of the way he plays with the puck. You know, you get you really get an appreciation for how he controls the pace of play uh, when he's on the ice. You know, the puck is when it's on his stick. He's making calculated decisions. He's not moving the puck before he has to. He's not dumping it in until he has to. He's willing to turn the play back uh, if he needs to in order to regroup, in order to maintain possession. And so I think he was probably the natural guy to slot down. And so, you know, as we've talked about saying that these were probably Detroit's two best consecutive games and these were the lines for most of the uh, or most of those two games, you know, if you pull the stats out and take a look at how these lines performed at five on five, uh, the Bertuzzi Larkin Helm line played about 21 minutes over the course of the Buffalo and uh, St. Louis games at five on five. They had a five on five Corsi four percentage, and again, Corsi is all the shots directed at the net. So, 
all shots on goal, all missed shots, all blocked shots. That line controlled 81% of shots at 5-on-5. So 81% of the shots taken with those three on the ice were by Detroit, 90, 19% by the opposition. Uh, the athanasiu philpolo Mantha line controlled two-thirds of the shots on the ice, but more impressively, when we factor in the quality piece that expected goals for percentage, um, that line was actually at 96.6% in 19 minutes of play, uh, which is a remarkable number that will absolutely not keep up, but it basically illustrates that moving Mantha down to that Athanasiu and Philpola line basically turned that line into a juggernaut. They generated 1.15 expected goals for and allowed 0.04, which is effectively you know, a unscreened shot from the point. So they were really, really dominant uh, over the course of those two games. And I thought that really gave Detroit two lines that could really carry play and generate dangerous scoring chances. Yeah, and, and, you know, to your point, you know, expected goals for percentage league-wide with guys who have played at least 50 minutes. Mantha's in the top 30 league-wide. He's over 60% of the expected goals for percentage at 5-on-5. Even more shocking, Darren Helm at number 6, like 63.86 so it seems like they've kind of, in this iteration, these weren't the first two line changes they tried this year, but in this iteration they seem to have uh, seem to have found something with two guys who have been able to make an impact at, at both ends uh, no matter where they've kind of played this year. So I think they're onto something with that. I, I especially think when you look at the way that, uh, you know, tonight, take two goals, for example. So Dylan Larkin's goal, Darren Helms in a board battle. He's kind of able to get the puck out. I don't. I don't. I couldn't really tell exactly what happened in, in the intricacy of that scrum. But Tyler Bertuzzi comes out of it, and they gave Helm an assist. So I assume he did something to get Bertuzzi that that puck, and then they give it to Dylan Larkin, and, and Larkin scores a goal. The other one, Mantha leading up on a rush, he gets it to Philpola in a pretty good position to to get it over to Athanasiu, and they get a really favorable bounce off a St. Louis defender's foot. Philpola manages to score a goal via a pass, which is just all too perfect. And uh, but I think those are two examples of, of why this works. They both add something to these two lines that I don't think those lines uh, maybe had enough of before. Yeah, and going back to your point about Darren Helm, I think in addition to talking about who should have been moved down from the top line, and again, top and second line being kind of relative here, is that both lines played roughly the same amount of time. Um, you also needed to make sure you had the right person that went up, and so. It, you know, I'm glad you asked Larkin what he thought of Helm's play and what he thought he could bring. You know, you and I have highlighted that Helm has really had an excellent start to the season. He's been arguably the best forward outside of those top three for Detroit. And so he's, even though he's, you know, the quintessential grinder that has basically carved out a career of being fast and being able to forecheck well, you know, he's had an excellent offensive start to the season and he is not out of place on that top line. And you know, you're absolutely right. He's a big reason why the Wings were able to generate a couple of those scoring chances. I mean, at one point, that line had 17 shots for and one against in about nine minutes of play, which is just absolutely insane. They ended up finishing with 19 shots for at five and five and only three against. I mean, they basically had the puck the entire night. St. Louis didn't really get a whole lot of time with the puck against him. And that line saw a fair bit of Ryan O'Reilly's line, which is, you know, not to say that it was an easy task for um, them to be able to control play. And so I think, you know, you're you're exactly spot on. They have something here uh, that looks like it could work. And I think it'd be uh, a good start to at least start with this lineup uh, over the next few games and kind of see if these guys are able to maintain a little bit more of a consistent offensive approach and offensive attack as opposed to just having that top line that would come out, they'd win their battle, but the Wings would basically get caved in the rest of the way. Yeah, I think you know the point you make about going against the O'Reilly line is uh, is an important one, and I think it's the one reason why I might push back a little bit on who the MVP has been thus far. Still, with 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 the Larkin line being consistently asked to go against that level of competition, I, I would agree that Mantha's probably been the most important player offensively. Um, but when you take into account kind of, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, there's some kind of score and val- or in, uh, quality competition, like adjustments that, that maybe could answer this question for us at, on some level. But to my naked eye, I still think when you consider the kind of competition Larkin's line is constantly going against, he probably, uh, edge it out for me, but, but certainly I don't think that's any kind of knock on Mantha. I think he's been really good. And I think, 
you know, even though he the scoring has cooled down since, you know, five goals in the first two games, he's still producing, he's still getting assists, and I think he's just as consistent as I've seen him uh, so far in my time covering the Red Wings, which admittedly not super long, and um, all those caveats apply, but I, I think he's been quite good. Now, now that we've praised this team for the first five or six minutes of the show here, this is an eight-game losing streak, and, and I don't think we can let that kind of go completely undiscussed. And I think we're in agreement that the Red Wings probably outplayed St. Louis and Buffalo, but still found ways to lose. Did you see anything that really stuck out that might have led to that in either game? I think it's the same drum that we've been beating the whole time, and it's the, the special teams has really been their undoing. I think if you look at this team at 5-on-5, five five, they haven't been awful. In fact, if you pull up their 5-on-5 five five expected goals for percentage for the totality of the season, they're at 50.8%. That's actually wow. 14th in the league. So they're they're not playing poorly, and obviously these last two games significantly bolstered their numbers. And again, we're still talking about a relatively small sample size of about 11 or 12 games here, but they're not playing poorly at 5-on-5. Five five. And so the problem really is like we've harped on their special teams. And so, again, you give up a big power play goal to Buffalo on a tic-tac-toe passing play that just can't, hap- uh, that just can't happen. Against St. Louis, you give up another two power play goals, including the game-tying goal uh, on that too many men on the ice penalty. And you've simply got just too many structural breakdowns with the Red Wings penalty kill. Um, on episodes past, I've kind of talked about what the Wings have done historically, which is this wedge plus one type penalty kill where you have one forward who's kind of roving at the top. The other three players make a triangle, and as the puck shifts sides of the ice, that forward will swap positions with the other forward in the point of that triangle. But effectively, that triangle is there to protect the most dangerous area of the ice, which is in the slot, in between those faceoff dots, and right in front of the net. And if you go back to the first power play goal that the Wings gave up tonight, uh, Madison Bowie actually on multiple occasions almost gets caught all the way out at the blue line, basically chasing out of there. And so, you know, traditionally in a wedge plus one type penalty kill, the defensemen really aren't part of the rotation to step up and challenge on the perimeter. Historically, it's always been for the Wings that the two forwards would kind of interchange as the puck shifted sides of the ice. And so what it looked like happened, and again, this is this is difficult to, to, to discern without understanding the intention of the players and what the scheme is from the coaches, but to my eye, it almost looks like Jacob De La Rose had made the decision that he wasn't going to chase, but Bowie did chase the puck on the perimeter, and that left three guys caught high. The Blues were able to get the puck across the slot over to Ryan O'Reilly, who had all the time in the world to step in, and Trevor Daly is basically responsible in front of the net for two different sticks to tie up. He ties up the guy closest to him, but he can't get the guy behind him, and Braden Shen gets a tap-in goal. And so, you know, it's it plays like that where the structure of the penalty, penalty kill is kind of breaking down unprompted. Like, there wasn't a need to chase that puck out to the perimeter. The perimeters are relatively low danger area particularly in the situation where that puck was and so I don't know if it was a miscommunication between Bowie and De La Rose or if the Wings really aren't even trying to play a witch plus one anymore and are almost playing more of a diamond penalty kill in which again there was still some miscommunication on who should have been where but bottom line there's just too many breakdowns on the penalty kill side of things that are resulting in goals against and ultimately is uh kind of derailing Detroit's not too bad five on five performance. Yeah, absolutely. No, the, the the special teams has been a constant source of uh of problems for the Red Wings. And I think when you know when Philip Ronick got that uh power play goal in the second period, I think there that was a, a much needed one, right? Like not only was it just their first one and or not not even their first one, but like one of the few ones of, of the whole season. Um I think it was important for it to come from Hronik. I think it was important since they've jumbled these power plays a little bit to maybe try to get some kind of rhythm going in there. And, and it, the penalty kill just managed to stifle it. And I don't know that the power play was all that good the rest of the game necessarily either. So tough tough sledding there. I'm not sure how much... It, like You have to think the penalty kill is due for some level of, I guess, positive regression just in terms of shooting percentage. But I also don't know that I think it's necessarily been a blameless... Uh, execution or whatever on their part and they're just getting burned like i think uh i think 
I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily know that I have a suggested change, but certainly I think it's fair to call that the the primary culprit in both of these two losses. Um, going back though to to the performance Sunday night, you made a really interesting point about the the activeness of the defensemen. Can you let our listeners in a little bit on that and and what you saw out of the Red Wings' top four defensemen tonight? Yeah, when you know historically, if you throw it back about a decade when Detroit was loaded on the blue line, you had you know Nick Lindstrom, Brian Rafalski, Nick Cronwell, Brad Stewart. You had an excellent defensive group, very mobile defensive group, and a lot of times they would join the rush. They would really collapse in play in the offensive zone, and those guys took a lot of shots for the Wings. Um, and you know, really, we haven't seen the Wings D be that level of active in a long time, and so. Tonight, as I was pulling up the box score and taking a look through to prepare for um, our talk, one of the things that actually jumped out to me was the number of shots taken by the Wings' top four defensemen. So this is Patrick Nemeth, Dennis Stolowski, Philip Roenick, and Mike Green. Those guys actually accounted for 40% of Detroit's five-on-five shots. Um, Nemeth and Stolowski both led the way with seven. Then you had Roenick with five, and you had Mike Green with four. Um, and those were four of Detroit's top six shooters on the night in terms of overall shot generation. And you really got to see that in effect in the third period as the Wings were kind of hemming the Blues in their own zone. You had, the, you had Patrick Nemeth on a number of occasions kind of jumping in, collapsing kind of St. Louis's defensive zone structure down below the faceoff dots and really being able to generate a lot of great scoring chances. I thought... That was a huge reason why Detroit was so dominant in the third period is their defensemen were really, really active on pinching, keeping the puck in play, and then throwing pucks at the net. And that really allowed a lot of those junkyard-type plays to happen, and that ultimately resulted in Detroit being able to sustain a lot of pressure in the third period. You know, hopefully that's something uh, the Wings continue to do because it, it really seemed to kind of jumpstart their offense in the third period along with getting that early goal. Yeah, and I thought the pinches were were really notable, so I'm really glad you made a point of that. Watching the game live, I have to admit my first reaction to seeing all the shots from the point were, well, I guess until there was a point where I think Chalowski had a really nice walk-in shot and maybe Nemeth with a similar one. But my my reaction was, like, why settle for all these outside perimeter shots, with which in general are going to be the lower percentage shots, right? But I think especially after you heard the Red Wings talking after the game about how they knew that Bennington uh, was on the second night of a back-to-back and you know they maybe wanted to, to put the pucks on him and then see what could happen, well, ultimately I think that makes a lot more sense now. And, and I think those dirty goals are, are a kind of goals the Red Wings absolutely have to improve uh, their, their output on, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I, in, in hindsight, I think it makes a lot more sense than maybe it did while I was watching it live. And, and I certainly think, you know, Philip Peronik's shot is a weapon that they have to utilize more than they have been. He's got an absolute laser. Both of his goals this year have been just absolute snipes. Um, they need to get as many, as many good looks for him as, as humanly possible. I think not unlike kind of what they did with Mantha, I think until teams take away the Hronik one-timer or sell out to take it away, uh, that should be a, a huge area of emphasis because he can really rip it. Yeah, and I think the Wings did a have done a good job, at least in terms of making those guys kind of the priority. Like, they know what their weapon is on the power play, and so you know a lot of times on power play one, it, it had been setting up Anthony Mantha, although with the units being swapped, Mantha was technically on power play two, so they were looking for a Philip Roenick on that first unit. And I, I think it's it's good that they know that that's there, but like we've talked about previously, once that weapon gets taken away, what are your options from there? And I think that's really where Detroit's power play is kind of broken down, is they, they simply don't know what to do when people are shading over on Mantha or shading over on Philip Ronick and not necessarily letting those guys tee off with clean looks. Um, and it's a big part of the reason why Detroit's power play has been so anemic. You know, they're 26th in shots generated, they're 28th in quality shots generated, And ultimately, that's why they're, you know, towards the bottom of the league in power play effectiveness. See, that's interesting. I I actually have 
not necessarily thought that that was the case. I think they've done an okay job when they're able to control the puck in the zone of, of keeping it moving until they find something. I just don't know if they've controlled the puck in the zone enough, whether that because of face-offs and entries, which we talked about a couple podcasts ago, and I think that that generally got a little bit better. But also just, you know, you'll see the, the, the odd bobble, and then they have to kind of wing it around the boards again, and it, and it it ends up kind of doing the defense's job for them because they're never really in a dangerous spot, and they have to kind of keep moving it around um, in a less controlled, less dangerous manner. But I could be wrong about that. That's just kind of a gut gut reaction after watching so i you know either way i think uh it's something the red wings you know the, the power play is a clear avenue for them to get better and i think uh as much as the penalty kill i think is is kind of a, an equal if not greater culprit it's something that they have maybe have a little bit more control over i don't know if that makes sense just because um you know in theory on, on the power play you should have have more control than you do on the penalty kill so that's kind of where I'm at on the special teams. Um, anything else really stand out to you from from this weekend? Well, I think one thing we got to talk about is uh, Giovanni Smith's uh, NHL debut over the first couple of games of his career. Um, I thought he didn't look out of place. I thought he was actually very, um, you know, active on the fourth line with Christopher N and De La Rose, and he, I thought he actually got a fair bit of. Um, you know, playing time also up in the lineup. He got some power play looks. He got a couple of shifts um, with the second line actually early or late in the first period with Athanasiu and Filpola. Um, and I thought he, I thought he drove the net well. I thought he was able to generate good chances. I don't know what uh, if he stood out to you in any particular way, Max. Yeah, I thought he was he was solid. Um, I, I still don't know like what his top end is. Like he's not a guy that I would advise. You know, I I guess maybe we should talk about Tara Hirose at some point here too, but maybe similar kind of deal where people have maybe over uh, over expected from Tara Hirose and, and now they're, they're feeling a little bit of disappointment about that. I think Giovanni Smith could be a candidate for that. I think, I, I agree he's looked pretty solid here these first couple of games. I'm just also not sure how much more room uh, for upside there is. You know, like I think the, the one area that I see from him that, that could really improve is he seems to have kind of lost control of a couple pucks while he was down around the goal line that that could have maybe been chances and then didn't become them because for, whether it was because of pressure or something else you know they just, they just didn't materialize. But I think on the forecheck he's been really heavy, which is exactly what you need to see from him as a bottom line around the net. He can be a difference maker for them. He's big. He's strong. You know those are things they could use at the net. So yeah, I, you know. But all things considered, I, I think he had a pretty solid first couple of games, and and I continue to be surprised at how little Evgeny Svechnikov is playing. I don't know if it is just because of health or whatever, but it seems like every game I look down at the stat sheet as we're waiting for the press conference to start, and his ice time is about half of what I would have assumed just based on how often I noticed him. So, that you know, on one hand, that seems like a good sign that you're noticing a guy that often for, I think tonight he played just like six and a half minutes. Uh, on the other side, I think, you know, there there is probably some some truth to the idea that you want him playing a little bit more, but I don't know how much of that's just trying to protect the injury or, or what it is. Cause I think, uh, I, to me, Sveshnikov stood out too. Yeah. It's a little bit difficult to discern. Um, you know, starting with Sveshnikov first, like you said, he, he played just barely over six minutes, but in, in those six minutes, the guy had three shots on goal. He had two high danger scoring chances as defined by natural stat trick, uh, which was tied for the team lead with Giovanni Smith. Um, and yeah. those were two of the guys who played the fewest amount of time at five on five. And so it is, it's fascinating. I'm not sure, you know, to your point, is it protecting the injury? Is it, they don't like what they're seeing? Is it, they're trying to double shift the top line guys and that's why he's losing minutes there. But I think he's largely been effective in the minutes that he's been given. And so it, it comes down to, is he not playing because the coaching staff doesn't think he's been effective or is it because... Like you said, uh, are they still trying to ease him back in the gameplay? Are they trying to protect his knee a little bit? He did have that hard fall the other night um, where he went awkwardly into the boards, although he didn't look any worse for the wear and obviously didn't miss the game against St. Louis. But I don't know if it's simply that because I, I can't really argue with his performance. I think he's given that third line kind of exactly what they've needed. Um, and in fact, over the two games, uh, the third line was relatively effective um, using that five on five expected goals for percentage, they were, you know, right there with uh, the Athanasiu Philpola Mantha line. Um, I said those guys came in at ninety six point six percent. The Hiroshi Nielsen Svechnikov line was at seventy one point four percent. So again, an excellent 
mark over those two games. So I, it's it's kind of hard to argue with his point or his play. Um, but you know, we don't have all of the information to really know one way or another. Um, I think going back to Giovanni Smith, though, you know, in in 12 minutes tonight, he actually generated the highest quality chances, at least measured by expected goals. He was at almost half an expected goal, um, which was tops on the wings for the game tonight. And so I think he has not only done a good job of forechecking, but he's getting himself into those positions to hack at those rebounds right in front of the net where you generally have the highest quality chances. And so I don't necessarily think he's got a position as a top six, top nine scoring winger. He never was that. I think drafting him in the second round and saying this in hindsight was probably a bit aggressive. If you look at his draft year, he had 42 points in 65 games in the OHL, um, which isn't necessarily a standout number. He was minus 27, which take that for what it's worth uh, using plus minus. But, you know, the attractiveness to him is maybe he's just a guy that can forecheck hard on a fourth line. So I don't know that you can really have higher expectations than that but i have been pleasantly surprised with what i see yeah and i think i think that's a pretty fair point like yeah i mean my only conclusion is that it has to be kind of like related to the health or or maybe just like situationally they want to put him in the best positions for him like i still think sveshnikov is a guy that they're going to be kind of developmentally conscious as much as anything about um but you know to my eye he's been pretty solid and i think you have to view that as a positive uh if you are a Red Wings fan or, or one of the Red Wings. Uh, so th- those are, uh, I guess those are the upsides. And, and certainly for two guys that you just called up, you know, pretty recently, I think that's probably a good sign too, um, that, that they've been able to step in and, and not be, you know, maybe not, maybe they haven't been crazy impactful and, and certainly they're not leading you to wins, uh, but they haven't been problems either. And I think that's, that's something worth, uh, worth noting. Uh, do you want to talk about Hiroshi at all? Do you have any kind of thoughts about his game? He had an assist tonight, but you know, where where are you at on him? What have you thought so far? You were a guy who, in particular, was pretty high on him coming into the season. Yeah, I mean, I was incredibly high on him given the way that he closed the end of the season and given where he was potentially slotting into the lineup with having either the opportunity to play with Athanasi or get a fair bit of power play time. Um, he seemed like the natural guy that had enough skill to to generate chances but I think for a large part of the season he's just looked a step behind in terms of not knowing necessarily where the play was going to be or not being strong enough to keep up with the play Um, but I do think uh, this past game against St. Louis was probably his best effort of the season if not close to it I think it was probably his most complete game I think he's had a lot of issues with some of the defensive responsibilities that have been given to him and you know I think it's been noticed by the coaching staff as his ice time has substantially dwindled uh so we talked about Svechnikov getting just over six minutes at five on five Hiroshi got just over seven minutes at five on five and again he also did very well in those seven minutes but you know I just don't know that he's necessarily being trusted in defensive situations anymore um so you know it's it's kind of hard I'm definitely disappointed relative to where I was starting the season but if you probably pull this back to a more realistic and objective perspective, given that he was an undraft, um, he's basically an NCAA free agent that's being signed. Very few of those tend to pan out in any impactful manner. Probably um, the most impactful one in recent years is probably uh, Justin Schultz. Um, and before that, you got to go all the way probably back to Martin St. Louis to have like a truly impactful um, NCAA. Uh, free agent so it's you know it's probably just a little bit of me having expectations that were unreasonable but tonight I thought was his best game and so hopefully he does get a little bit more out of that and I don't know if it's that Svechnikov has sparked that offensive ability in him a little bit more than um, Athanasiu maybe but it's it's hopeful hopefully he's turning the corner a little bit here yeah I think you know a couple of Blashell comments lately that I think are, are worth noting here is that they have really liked him on the power play, and they think he's had a couple of, of uh, kind of shot creations or, or chance creations uh, with the man advantage that, that just didn't turn out to be goals. Like, you know, just on a matter of the puck didn't go in the net, not because they weren't good good chances. So he's got four assists in 12 games. Uh, I don't think that's actually too bad for a guy in his situation, but relative to what he did last year, and maybe relative to kind of the fuller picture, um, you know, I think that's probably still falls short of, of what people were hoping for out of him. Although I still think there's a use for him kind of on the power play there. 
the big key is going to be at even strength. And especially as we talk about these kind of new top two lines that seem to be working for the Red Wings, you know, Taro Hirose, as of right now, does not strike me as a guy who's going to be at his best in a third line um, role, or I guess kind of with th- the, the guys you usually would think of as third line line mates. Now, Sveshnikov is a guy who maybe could be like a sort of second line line mate when you think about like his toolkit, but he also is kind of using it uh, as whatever he needs right now. So so if you're looking, I guess the, this is a convoluted way of saying it, but Sveshnikov can score is, is what this comes down to, right? And it, Hiroshi needs a guy on his line who can score, who can finish the chances he's going to create for him. When he's in a third-line setting, like if, if uh, Franz Nielsen is his center, for example, as he has been, I'm not sure that Nielsen's going to finish the chances that Hiroshi creates, and that's not necessarily... Uh, you know, an ideal situation for him because he's not on the top six. And when he was in the top six, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't make a, a massive difference. So right now, Hiroshi's probably learning a little bit about what, what he's going to have to do to adjust. I don't think that's unreasonable given that he's, what is he at? Like 20 career NHL games right now. Like, you know, I, I think he's got uh, probably half a point per game in that sample. So fair to give him some time to make the adjustment. Maybe just kind of a thing that everyone kind of needs to temper their expectations about, number one, how high the ceiling may may or may not be, and maybe how quick he's going to get there. But I think there's still a use for him and, and a role for him, especially where this team is now and, and projects to be kind of next year um, in, in terms of what he can add. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the short term, he's, he's certainly a guy that uh, will play top nine minutes in Detroit. I think long term, you know, again, if you take this back to the view of what does a championship contender look like? Is there a player like Taro Horosi playing in your top nine? Probably not. Um, is there is there a player like Taro Horosi playing on the power play? Probably not. But for this team where they're at right now and in the short term, uh, probably in the next two to three years, he's a guy that might be able to make a meaningful contribution. And, you know, like you said, maybe Svechnikov's a guy that he can play with. You know, Nielsen's maybe not the ideal center for him, but you know, I still think they have enough there to be somewhat productive. Yep, I would tend to agree. You know, I'm not even going to say that I'm going to rule out him being on a team down the line that's competitive. I think, you know, his his playmaking is a legit, really high-quality skill, but it's just you got to find a place for him in all in all settings, and, and to some degree it's, it's not even you have to find it. It's that he has to prove he can, he can be in those situations. So that's kind of where I would say... Uh, Hiroshi's at right now. Should we uh, talk about Grand Rapids a little bit? Yeah, so I think also Grand Rapids had a, an exciting couple of games since we last recorded. So they were able to pick up a couple of more wins. They picked up a 4-1 win against the Manitoba Moose and then uh, came back from a 3 nothing deficit against the Texas Stars on, what was that, Saturday to, to close out a 6-4 win. And, you know, exactly what everyone wants to hear. You had Joe Valeno pick up his first pro goal on the win over Manitoba. You had Zadina and Sider each pick up an assist in the 6-4 win over the Stars. Max, I don't know if you were able to catch any more of the games than I was, but do you have any updates on how everybody looked? I actually was only able to, very, in a very limited way, watch in the press box uh, Friday night. I was able to see Valeno's uh, score his uh, triumphant first AHL goal on, on the rebound there. after the. Actually, it was a pretty nice play by Zadina to get it to Chase Pearson, then a nice play by Pearson to dig out a rebound for Valeno to score. But I didn't see a whole lot more than that. I haven't been able to watch yesterday's game yet, although I did see the highlights. Um, I was at the the Michigan-Notre Dame game last night and uh, still kind of wringing out my skin from all the water that was coming I was going to say, down. I was watching that one on TV, and that looked awful. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I left in the second quarter, so I guess I can't <laughs> really even complain that much. Like, my, my friends from school were in town, so we all went to the game, and uh, suffice to say, I'm a whole lot less invested in, <laughs> in college football than all my buddies were, and so I was. I, Allison and I bailed pretty early because it was uh, it was kind of miserable to be in the stands there. So, yeah, that uh, anyway that led to me missing the game, and so I've seen the highlights, and I know that you know Michael Rasmussen missed the two games with with an injury. I, when when we asked Blasher about it the other day, he said mid, and I, I assume he meant mid body because that's something that you know he's taken to saying when something's kind of usually it's just upper or lower he's kind of taken to saying things are mid-body i guess it probably is mid-body i'm not saying that's not true but i don't really know what it means uh it is possible that he meant mid-term but i'm pretty sure he meant mid-body and but hopefully we'll know one way or the other kind of how quickly he can be back um yeah but i don't know i didn't see a whole lot of anything else yeah and you know one thing i want to bring up kind of with the way the griffins have looked and we've talked a little bit about their log jam on defense uh 
kind of shifting a little bit back to the current team, I think one guy that has really struggled um, up in Detroit, at least recently, has been Madison Bowie. And so, you know, coming into the season, he was kind of thought of as the potential 6th, 7th defenseman. The Wings go out and get Alex Biega. But you've got Jonathan Erickson sitting down in Grand Rapids. You've got a whole host of other guys who look like they're potential NHL players with Al Kaski and obviously Moritz Sider and Gustav Lindstrom. You know, is there any potential, because I think a lot of our listeners have kind of asked this question, but is there any potential that we see either Erickson come up, Biega come in? Because uh, it seems like Bowie is kind of, with his level of play, potentially putting his spot in jeopardy or his regular spot in jeopardy? Um, it's a tough question because I think, I think the Red Wings defense core as a whole is not great. And so I, you know, I don't know that I'm seeing someone who's like obviously better than Bowie ready to take that spot instead, you know, but at the same time, if you wanted to shuffle a little bit, I think that would be plausible too. You know, Alex Biega had a couple of moments in, in his stint, but um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've changed any kind of thoughts on what, what Madison Bowie's season is going to look like. I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of the, uh, this is the situation we thought it would be. You know, I think he, he's going to probably shuffle in and out of the sixth spot on the blue line. And, um, I, I just kind of think that's how it's going to go. I mean, this is one of those situations w- with rebuilding teams where, uh, you just kind of have to, there, there's not always something else coming. And I think this is something the Red Wings are kind of telling themselves right now is if, if they're going to turn this around, it's going to happen with the guys who are already in the room, you know, and, and to, to take that one step further, probably going to be the guys who are already in the lineup, you know, maybe a substitution here or there sparks something. You can ride that for a little bit, but you know, I can't say like one thing that I think Bowie's doing particularly poorly or anything like that, that, you know, he has to like work tirelessly to correct. But I, I just think, you know, the Red Wings blue line outside of the kind of those flashes of offense and, and certainly the development of Philip Peronik, I think is a big plus, but I just don't think it's really up to, up to snuff to get them to, to, to break out of it uh, in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, to give a little bit more context to, to what I'm talking about with Bowie here. And so if you use um, Micah Blake McCurdy's, so this is ineffective math on Twitter, uh, who's the creator of Hockey Viz, um, one of the metrics that he's kind of created is this isolated impact um, for the season. And obviously the amount of data we have for the season is small, but, you know, Bowie's impact on offense right now, his isolated impact is minus 17%, which is one of the worst on the team. And defensively, he's plus 11%. And so effectively, his net impact is a minus 26% overall, or minus 28% overall. And so he's kind of been a little bit of a a drag, both offensively and defensively. We've talked a little bit about some of the turnovers that he's made, and he doesn't look entirely comfortable out there. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see because the big unknown for all of us is kind of what's going to happen with Jonathan Erickson. Is he truly done? Is he not truly done? You kind of alluded on that last episode that you don't necessarily think he is done if we're looking long-term, but maybe short to moderate. Who Who's to say what happens? But it'll be interesting to see if, if that does change up from there. Um, yeah, and I'm not even really some... arguing that, that, like, you know, I, I'm not saying, like, Bowie's been, like, good or anything like that. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking, like, what's the thing that he's doing that's that's not working? Like, I, I'm not disputing those numbers, but, like, you know, he he's he is one of the guys who made one of those pinches that you talked about earlier. And, and obviously I'm not going to, you know, use one pinch play to sum up a guy's impact on the ice. I, I believe those numbers, like, based on what I've seen. I'm just not sure what, like, the area of his game that needs to change is. You know, is it, is it holding the line better? Is it... Because that's something I think the Red Wings could do a better job of as a whole. Is I think they let a, a few chances and pucks that have gone to the blue line creep out, and it's really hurt them, including on the power play. But um, yeah, I guess the, the the point I'm making on Bowie is I just don't necessarily know what the what the fix is. You know, like I don't I don't know what the answer is there. I think it might. just Yeah, be... I mean that's the million dollar question with with analytics is for players and coaches. How do we distill the numbers that are calculated that are you know tabulated right. into what someone can meaningfully do to change their performance. You know, to my eyes, I see Bowie make a couple of more turnovers and I see him tend to fumble the puck a little bit more, maybe not make great outlet decisions, but I'm not necessarily contextually tabulating all of that and 
and saying, yes, this is what's leading to this, which is what's leading to this. And that's part of what makes the analytics piece a little bit tougher to utilize. But, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what Detroit does, um, you know, regarding their defense, because I think this is the most uh, interesting aspect where there's not a lot of insight, um, given the number of guys between Grand Rapids and here that technically could play at the NHL level. Yep, absolutely. Should we go to the listener questions? Let's do it. All right. Uh, so let's see. Jake, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Jake, but Jake L says in the aftermath of Erickson clearing waivers, is this something to be expected from Eiserman going forward with the likes of Abdulkader, Nielsen, and other older players with big contracts on the books? Uh, I did get into this in my story this week about Erickson. I, I think it, the answer depends on what kind of time frame you're referring to. Is it something that's going to be expected from Eiserman? Big picture and how he will handle older players with big contracts? I think yes. I think that is telling that he's not necessarily going to defer to those contracts or those service with a team kind of thing um, You know, much at all. Like I think he's, it's just going to be what's in the best interest of the team. In the interest when you talk about Abdulkader and Nielsen – like, in the short term, does it change what he's going to do with them? I think not at all. Like, I, those contracts are so substantial and so long that, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how there's even a comparison necessarily between those situations. Not like that's not like a criticism of the question. I just, I just think that's the, um, the reality of the situation is. I don't think you can draw any insight into it this season. Like, I don't think you're going to see Franz Nielsen waived. You know, um, nor do I think he's necessarily been uh, as. <laughs> as subpar as Erickson had been in the last year or two. Like, I think I think Nielsen's one of the guys who needs to give them a lot more night to night right now. I don't think it's to the same degree. that Like, Erickson had literally been passed on the depth chart and was, like, ninth on the depth chart at defense, is my understanding. Not necessarily, that's not coming from the staff, but just the way that things played out, right? Um, and I don't think that's the case with Franz Nielsen. I think he's third or fourth on the center depth chart. So it, it's it's a pretty substantial difference. But I think when you get down the line in two or three years from now, my thought would be, yeah, I think it's fair to read into this decision and say, you know, it, it's probably fair to expect that Eisenman's not going to worry too much about loyalty when he's making decisions on those guys two, three years from now. Yeah, I think it's very hard to say what he's going to do. We obviously know he's not uh, unwilling to make uncomfortable moves. Obviously, buying out Vinny LeCavier in Tampa was in a huge one. Um Big difference there being he had a compliance buyout uh, that he was able to use in that scenario because LeCavier had seven years left on his contract at north of $7 million. So, you know, to him, that was a no-brainer from a money standpoint. You don't really have that option to you um, here for a guy like Abdulkader, for a guy like Nielsen. Nielsen, after this season, still has two more years at uh, $5.25 million, and I believe he's still got a modified no-trade clause um, for the, dura- uh, the duration of his contract. Um, so he, he's going to be a tough one to do anything about. Same with Justin Abdelkader. Uh, I don't know that, you know, to your point, Max, that this really says, the waving of Erickson really says anything other than he just wasn't one of the top eight defensemen right now, and I'm willing to make this move because he needs to get some games in and he can't get them in here in the NHL right now. Yep, yep, I would tend to agree. Uh, Phil Roberto says, first line and fourth line seem fine. Veterans Phil and Franz are not pulling their weight in making our second and third lines better. Should they be making the players around them better, but not happening? Solutions, do you give them more time or do you make them fourth liners? Uh, it's interesting because I, I I think we keep calling this line the fourth line, and I'm guilty of it too. Are we sure that that, that you know the De La Rose line is like truly like a fourth line? I guess by ice time tonight, they were, but... Um, you know, at five on five, the De La Rose line played a little bit more than the Nielsen line. So, I'm. I guess maybe I don't know how you want to term that, right? Like, Nielsen got. Yeah, I mean, I, the Nielsen line got five minutes at five on five tonight. Yeah, I think it's entirely dependent on how you want to use your distinction of first, second, third, and fourth lines. Is it how they're written on a piece of paper when they're tweeted out before the game, or is it entirely based on uh, ice time? Because if it's based on ice time, you know, for a large part of the the season that line that de la rose line had been playing kind of the second most minutes um and now they're probably down to the third most minutes now that you have uh, a little bit more of a competent second line so i i to me they're the third line they're the line that's um you know playing the third most minutes right now and it's not inappropriate with the way they've been playing we've highlighted their performance at the you know in earlier episodes that 
you know, at, after the first five games, they were one of the top five lines in hockey uh, by expected goals for percentage. And so I, I think they've been effective. I don't know that um, they're the problem. I don't know that you're, you're going to get anything more out of Franz Nielsen than, than what he is right now. You know, Nielsen is simply at this stage in his career, a solid defensive center with probably no offensive upside whatsoever. I think all you're hoping for is that he provides some sort of safety net for the guys playing with him, guys like Hiroshi and Svechnikov. Um, and then Philpola, on the other hand, I think is almost the opposite where he's never really been a, uh, you know, he's never been a scorer. Like we just talked about today. He, he just scored a, a goal on a pass. He was literally <laughs> passing the puck and he got his first goal. Um, and really over the, last few seasons uh, of his career he's not been a huge net positive or net negative on defense um, either way and so I don't know that you can expect these guys at this stage in their career to really do anything more than just be on the ice and not necessarily be the reason why the team's bad but they're not going to give you that much yeah Um, and one clarification I should probably make Nielsen played nine and a half minutes at five on five. De La Rose played 10 and at 10, almost 11. But those, so those numbers I gave before were, were kind of the, the main lines they were on. Those lines were together for that amount of five on five. But I don't think it really changes the point. And, and to, to your point, Prashant, I think it is kind of they are what they are. The one thing I'd push back on with Nielsen is I do think offensively he's still a smart enough player that he can, you know, add something. But it's just not like as much something as you'd like it to be for that kind of contract. You know, like, if you play him with um, Hiroshi and Svechnikov, he's, I don't think he's a drag on that line. I just don't think he's elevating it. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, frankly, if that's your fourth line, fourth line center, like Franz Nielsen, I think that's that's whatever. You know, like I, I, don't, I don't think it's... Uh, he, he is one of many players on the team who they need to get more, you know, everything out of. Um, I don't really know what you can do about it, though. Like, you're already giving him the least minutes of any center on the team. Philpola is a different case. I think that line found something, you know, like, and I don't, again, I think Mantha and Athena were the reasons for that, but at the end of the day, you need a center between them, and Philpola technically is the one who scored the goal, even though, like we've talked about, it was not an attempted shot. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think this just comes down to the reality that it's really hard to say enough times for people to kind of internalize it. And I, I get that because it's not like people don't understand that the Red Wings aren't a particularly talented team. It's just that it's probably really difficult to go through it night in, night out and, and see them lose games. But, you know, like we've talked about, I think they were probably the, the better team, both of these last two, and they just lost. And and so people are looking for, for tweaks, how it can get that one, you know, one notch better so that the outcome is a win. And I just don't think there's any happy end game there you know what I mean yeah exactly and I think uh one of the important things we should highlight is people are going to watch games like the game against St. Louis the game against Buffalo where the Wings put up 41 shots and go you know this is a team that should be able to compete and I think that the difference between what you're seeing in Detroit and then a team uh that's a Stanley Cup contender is consistency can this team do this night in and night out and I think the answer we all know is no so yes you will see flashes and you'll see the promise and you'll see the excitement and that'll make you go oh why don't we just jettison all these veterans or jettison all the other people that are potentially weighing them down because you get a great night from your young players like you did against St. Louis but I think what it is is you don't necessarily have the consistency right now of a Stanley Cup contender nor is that expected and I think you're still a ways away from there and so um, you know, I just don't, I don't necessarily know that they're the problem, but, and we all know that they're not the solution. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to put it. I, I just think like, maybe this will bleed into something that we got several questions in, in the inbox tonight about Jeff Blaschel and his job. And I, I think these are similar topics here, right? Like it's, I don't think Jeff Blaschel is the problem with this team at all. Per- personally, I don't know like how much of the solution he has. I do think he seems to be developing some of their young players pretty well. I do think you can point to a lot of nights and say their effort level got them to a place where they could have won a game against a team that I wouldn't have thought they could have beat tonight being one of them. Um, Now St. Louis in the second night of a back-to-back, I don't know how much the mitigating is, and I don't really know if it's about that one game at all in general. But I think it's it's just sort of, it speaks to broadly uh, a place that I think I sense the fan base being in where 
there needs to be a reason that this is happening and it's not working. And I just don't know if there's a satisfactory, you know, scapegoat or, or answer or whatever it is. You know what I mean? I, I just don't know if, uh, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's any answer out there, any one or two fixes that, that suddenly make this better. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, touching on the Jeff Blaschel subjects, you know, I've never been kind of a huge advocate of his in, in any meaningful way, but I think part of my issue with that has been, I don't know that I ever appropriately accounted for just how little talent there is on this roster. Um, you know, you're exactly right. Everyone wants a scapegoat. Everyone wants to be able to say, this isn't working and this is the reason why. And you're, you're looking for that scapegoat. The scapegoat is there's just not enough talent on this roster. Um, I don't know that what the reasonable expectation is. I've had this conversation with a number of people a number of times over the last couple of years. It's what is a reasonable expectation for a team that simply doesn't have the talent of a Stanley Cup contender, the talent of a playoff contender. Um, And the answer is all you're looking for is consistent development of the guys that you think are a part of the future. Um, And so relating to Jeff Blasio, where I really softened on my stance with him is last season. Did the Wings have one of the, you know, five worst records in the NHL? Yes. But did Dylan Larkin take a huge step forward? Yep. Anthony Mantha took a huge step forward. And Andreas Athanasiu took a huge step forward. The Wings hadn't had a 30-goal scorer in 10 years, and they had two of them, and they were two of their youngest players who were able to take that step forward. And so... At the end of the day, I think that's all I can really evaluate him on because this is a team like we just talked about with uh, guys who just don't move the needle. Uh, they're not going to be a playoff contender and they're not a championship contender. And I think it's important to just understand that even if you let go of Blashill because you don't think he is the solution, which I think that's an entirely different conversation, um, you know, I don't know that there's anybody that steps in and immediately changes the outcomes or results that you're getting. I think it's, I think you made it, you just made a perfect point there. And I, we should probably be clear. Like, I don't think either of us is saying that Jeff Blasio is blameless in all of this, right? It takes a whole lot of people to lose as many games as the Red Wings have lost over the last two, three years. And it would be kind of absurd to say the coach was immune from being, you know, lumped in with that, right? Like, I'm sure there's things he can do differently and do better, um, the point that we're trying to make is just what Prashanth closed with, which is, is he the problem? Like, probably not, right? Like, but the matter of a solution is a wholly different question. And it's, frankly, it's a, it's a conversation that I don't know, I don't know where to even start with on, on how to, how to measure it. So don't, don't take it as, as Prashanth or I saying that, you know, Jeff Blaschel is immune from any criticism or second guessing or any of that, because it's not what we're getting at here. It's just a matter of, uh, I think trying to distill some, some frustrations into kind of one or two kind of key themes that that we're observing and and ultimately people maybe should take to heart a little more of of where uh where the reality of the situation is it's it's just a it's a big (laughs) it's a big job to kind of turn this whole thing around and i think if you find yourself looking at a situation saying this one thing is the problem it's worth a step back and seeing the whole picture then finding the solution that way but again like i don't have the solution either so uh, tough, tough topic for sure. Uh, let's see if there's any more questions here before we wrap up. Okay, let's uh, wrap up with this one. So that is, if Zadina, Valeno, Cider, and whoever they draft are NHL-ready next year, would Blasher allow four rookies on the team at once? Um, it's. <laughs> I think we've actually kind of gotten into this in, in a lighter, less direct sense in the past. Number one, I would say the likelihood of that happening is quite small, right? Like, I think... Uh, I could see maybe one or two of that of that bunch being like quote unquote NHL ready next year, and and that may even depend on like if they get Alexi Lafreniere, maybe Quentin Byfield, maybe Alexander Holtz, who I think is playing pro hockey right now, uh, in the SHL and getting okay minutes. Like, I guess I could see that, uh, but I generally I don't think it's like necessarily safe to assume the guy they draft next year is going to be NHL ready. That hasn't been the case either the last three drafts that they've taken a top 10 pick. So that would be one point on that. Valeno has not kind of shown any reason to think like he's like, you know, right on the doorstep right now. And there's a lot of season left. So I'm not saying that's not going to be the case in a year, but 
Um, you know, that's that. And Cider is, is a guy who I actually could see. Like, I, I thought he looked pretty good when I was down there. I, I know that there's probably still some some rawness in there and things to learn. Um, but especially when you consider how much potential space is going to be cleared on the blue line, that looks to me like a plausible one. And then Zadina, I think it's in his own hands. So I, I don't know if that really answers the question. Would the coaching staff allow four rookies on the team at once? Of course. Like, But they have to actually be ready for that, right? Like, I don't think there's a, <laughs> a bias against guys under 20, 21 or whatever, right? But I think it's, uh, I think it's, is there really a, uh, what's the real likelihood that all four of those specific guys are NHL ready one year from now? I feel like that looks unlikely, right? Yeah, I completely agree with you that I don't know that all four uh, are NHL ready. I think I also agree with you in that um, Cider, of the players currently in the system, I guess that Cider, as of now, looks to be the most NHL ready, although I suspect that if any of them were actually given a spot next year, it'd be likely Zadina uh, first, just given that he's been in the, the organization an extra year. Um, you know, to actually answer this piece, I think if the Wings end up in the top five of the draft, then whoever they do draft is probably more NHL ready than anybody else they have in their system right now, just with the guys that are going to be available in the top five. Um, so that could be exciting. But I think to bring it back to the crux of the question, I think, again, it's important not to scapegoat Jeff Blaschel for the reason a player is or is not on the roster. It is an organizational decision from the top down as to whether or not a player plays. Yes, the coach is going to say, I want this guy on my team. And Sure, the general manager could disagree, or the, it could be the exact opposite. The general manager says, I want this guy on my team. The coach says, I don't really want that. But, you know, in general, it is an organizational decision. And I think if those four guys are better than what the Wings have, and the Wings are going to have a lot of open roster spots. We've talked about this. There's, you know, eight or nine contracts up this year, and I don't expect everybody to be back. Um, but if those four guys are the guys that are ready, they're going to be the guys on the team. You know, just look to the beginning of last season. Yes, there was a lot of injuries, but the Wings could have gone out, signed some veterans. They could have pulled up Brian Lashoff. They could have pulled up Dylan McElrath. They didn't. They started off the season with a lot of the younger guys, with the Joe Hicketts, um, you know, with Libor Sulak, with a handful of other guys instead. So I think that kind of speaks to their willingness to do that if they feel that those are the best guys. One thing I will say, like trying to engage with this question a little, you know, more maybe in the way that it's intended. Like, what I will say is, if if you're looking at a guy who's kind of fringy, his readiness readiness is kind of fringy. I could see an argument where maybe in a situation where there's a lot of veterans, you're willing to add that fringier readiness guy onto the roster, knowing you know how much kind of veteran buffer or whatever you can give him. Then you would be in a situation like the Red Wings look like they're going to be in next year with with a pretty young team. Like I think when you're looking at potentially the possibility of having two rookies on one line. Maybe you're not going to give as much benefit or the doubt to that fringier rookie, but I will say that I don't think that necessarily meets the criteria for NHL readiness. Like, so I think that's maybe where the, where the real discussion gets had about what, uh, what a team would prefer or not in terms of how much youth they have. Like if you have, if you have uh 12, 18 year old Connor McDavid's you're taking 12, 18 year old Connor McDavid's right. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just a matter of how ready are you talking about when you say NHL ready? Cause there are probably nudges that they've allowed to go based on kind of the veteran nature of the team that maybe, uh, maybe you wouldn't see happen if, if that's kind of the way that the question was intended. So that's, that's what I would say about that. Let's get to two quick hitters here because they're two uh, personal friends of mine who have asked questions and I would like to uh, read their questions. <laughs> James, our Pistons writer, says best Wings goalie of all time is. Your thoughts? Oh, well, that's a. I feel like there has to be two categories here. There has to be a category for the best goalie to ever put on the winged wheel jersey, and then kind of the standpoint of who's actually, uh, you know, when you consider value to the organization maybe over a period of time because the best goalie to ever put on the wing wheel jersey is Dominic Koshik, and that's that's not even close for me. He's the best goaltender of all time. Um, and he played, you know, a handful of years for the Wings, and he won a Stanley Cup, uh, two Stanley Cups with the Wings. So to me, he's the best goaltender to ever put on the wing wheel. But if you're talking about the sentimental uh, value, then it's got to be Terry Sawchuk. Okay, I'll say Hasek and take the easy answer. Um, 
but I also don't know a whole lot about Terry Sawchuk, so that could be uh, blatantly misguided. Last one, my friend Mike asks, where are my keys? Mike lost his keys in Ann Arbor when we were there this weekend, so Prashanth, where are Mike's keys? Oh, that's a good question. If you lost them in the big house, those are gone. Not in the big house. We were. This was the night before the game. Ooh, night before. Hmm. That's a you know that's a tough one. I couldn't even tell you where in Ann Arbor those might end up. Uh, yeah. I if you already checked BTB, that's you might be out of luck, Mike. Uh, so I guess to our listeners, if you're in Ann Arbor and you see Mike's keys, DM me. I don't know how you'll know they're his, but maybe you do. And uh, if you run a key making business and can help Mike figure out an alternative, well, that might be just as good. Uh, I think that's gonna do it. For us tonight, Prashanth, you got anything else to add? That's it. Um, If you guys are in Carolina on Friday, I'll be at the game, so I'll see you guys there. And Prashanth, I think you could probably get a beer if someone wanted to buy you one. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right, well, there we go. Buy Prashanth the beer if you're at the game this Friday. That'll do it for us, and we will talk to you in the middle of this week on our next episode of Wings for Breakfast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at M underscore Boltman, B-U-L-T, M-A-N, Prashanth is at Iyer, I-Y-E-R, no, sorry, underscore Prashanth or underscore Iyer Prashanth? At I-Y-E-R underscore Prashanth, P-R-A-S-H-A-N-T-H. Okay, perfect. And if you want to hear our midweek episode, subscribe to The Athletic, www.theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. They'll get you 40% off, and we would love to have you on board. Thank you.